Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. It is my honor and pleasure to be here with uh, Dr. Joe Fryman, who uh, has become a close friend during the pandemic. Uh, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure, pleasure to speak with you. Joe, here, I, uh, I, I thought here, I, here right now on a vac vacation with my family, but luckily it was a bold move. I we're on the beach and I, I got to step away from it. Not, not because I wanted to talk to you more than hang out with my family <laughs> on the beach, but, but because, uh, my, my kid had the nap. So I got to be, you know, a good, good father, take my kid back for but nap. Those, while she those naps. that are, are, are just listening are not seeing Joe with his Hawaiian uh, <laughs> shirt, his unkempt hair. <laughs> Anyways, and, Joe, I, I and, wanted to and, margarita. Wanted, and the margarita <laughs> looks like a glass of milk from here, but you know. Um, so, so, Joe, uh, I wanted to introduce uh, folks who are listening to the podcast to you. Uh, some may know you, but I think many don't, and they really should. Uh, so, I, I want to start with like you're, you're you're an ER doctor, but you have the soul of a scholar. We've talked about so many topics, um, you and I, over, uh, over the course of the last year of getting to know each other. Uh, can you tell me about your background? So how, how did you get to be an ER doc? How, what, what, how did you get to be a doctor at all? What did you, did you, you know, what, what, how, how did you become Joe Freiman? So essentially it was, it was definitely not a direct path to becoming a doctor. It was, uh, initially in college, I planned on becoming a, a neuroscientist and, uh, I worked in a lab and I was, I was really good at neuro neuroscience. I loved it. Actually. It was, a uh, you know, I was working with, I was doing rat, rat experiments. I was psychopharmacology studies. So, um, but, uh, what happened in, in college was, uh, I was working with this graduate student who I still work with actually today on brand and projects. And we, what we discovered, we were working with a, a drug, the drug ecstasy, the street drug, you know, it was MDMA. We were looking for, for neurotoxicity. We worked for our grants were all from NIDA and, uh, I learned that the way that just the scientific system works there was if you found, if you, the results of our study were not what the National Institute of Drug Abuse wanted, which may, means that ecstasy is incredibly harmful for people, then you would sort of uh, maybe not write that study or, or kind of write it in such a way that fit with the granting agency, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And that was just, for this drug. And I became very turned off by the entire scientific field when I realized that no one who isn't incredibly well-versed in this very specific literature could even know what's going on for real because the people funding it are controlling what the conversation looks like on the surface. And so you discovered uh, this early, early on in your career. This is, this is when you were still a student or you were in medical student school and you're, oh, no, you're... no, this was undergraduate. Undergraduate, okay. Undergraduate. Yeah, no, I planned on going to become a PhD initially. I didn't plan on becoming an MD. And then after college, I decided to take a, a year. I was going to be an EMT. And uh, I realized, well, at first I was an EMT at college because I, I just wanted to learn how to take care of people if something bad happened near us. And uh, I realized being an EMT on college didn't accomplish that. All I did was hold hold girls' hair back while they vomited on college campuses. So then I joined the, the fire department of, uh, of New York, and I ended up there for about four years. I became a paramedic, which is a, a higher level of, uh, of uh, EMT. And from while I was on the bus, I studied for, <laughs> on this ambulance, I studied for, for the testing for medical school. 
So I, then I, I think I finally got into medical school. I think I was about 30 probably when it's I, a, when I first got in. Medicine was a way to escape this sort of like uh, oppressive, you know, you have to find this result. You, you know, you, but, but you, you kept your interest as a scholar. Like I, I know oh. that from the kinds of yes. kinds of things we talked about during, uh, over the last year. Like, so, so you, oh, you I, 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 medical school. Yeah, no, I, and I almost got taken back in actually in a, in medical school, I started doing studies again. Um, I had a lab, I worked in a lab. It was an epigenetic lab actually. And, uh, and psycho, and we also were doing psychopharmacology work there as well, uh, looking for at, at, at some antidepressant work. And, and, um, I was offered a position to become an MD PhD at the time. And, uh, it was a very hard decision. I, I, it took me a very long time actually to figure it out, but I ended up deciding to not do it because I was scared of what, uh, the reason I didn't go into it in the first place, <laughs> thinking, but um, but I, I always there has always been a super passion of just the, of the practice of science, and I have a, a deep love just for for understanding of science, and uh, you know, so it's yeah. So then I went through medical school, decided not to do that P- MD PhD route, got to residency from from medical school. I was at I was at Cornell Cornell Medical School, which they really push, they really love people to do all sorts of research or policy, not medicine. (laughs) If you graduate from Cornell medical school, they don't even, they barely teach you how to be a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so let's just, let's just skip forward just a bit. Um, So you decide you do want to be a doctor after all you're, you're, and you, you're, you're not going to be like an academic doctor, you know, although you have these interests in science, you're turned off in your early career from, it seems like in order to please scientific funding agencies, you have to like get the answer they kind of want or, or, or pitch your science in a way that's consistent with their framework, even if you disagree with it. So you decide, okay, I'm just going to be a doctor. Uh, yes. And you, you end up somehow in Louisiana as, a, as, a, as an ER doctor. Um, so tell, tell us about your career in the, like the immediate years before COVID. Um, yeah, so, before, so I did my residency in, in uh, New Orleans. And that was how I ended up in Louisiana from, from New York. And, uh, we, and my wife just loved it here in Louisiana. So we've, we've stayed here. We're, we're not leaving. And, uh, so, it, but, uh, our, the training of emergency medicine in, in, uh, New Orleans, it has one of our, it has one of the best emergency medicine programs in the country. And that's why I came here. But they, while I was in uh residency, I kept trying to do research actually. And, uh, my program was, uh, they were way more into training you into being a very good doctor. It was very much the opposite of what Cornell would have done. <laughs> they encouraged research, but I, and, and, you know, I'm actually in many ways, I think the better for it, it definitely made me a much better emergency medicine physician. Um, and, uh, but I kept trying to do various research projects through residency and, and, um, I would pretty much just get knocked. I would get knocked down a lot, uh, trying them, but it wasn't out of the, the problems before where it was a, a granting issue. It was more just like focus. Science is hard. I mean, yeah, you focus know. on your thing. And and generally what I focused on in from a uh, academic standpoint in through residency was uh, clinical trial interpretation was the major, major thing that I just heavily, you know, kind of focused in on what determining what drugs work, what drugs don't work, what are we doing? And, um, and then through residency and and the practice of emergency medicine, I began to realize that 
just a lot of the medicine that we were doing wasn't, it probably didn't work was my concern. And it was probably hurting people. And so then that sort of became my area of essentially research, but not within a lab in such a sense, but it was in clinical trial interpretation, piecing together data and, and just figuring out where, what, what is a, what, what's the right medical treatment for individual and like using the concepts of science, incorporating it into the practice of medicine and how do you do that? And also, and communicating it with other physicians mainly was the. So just, just to, just to probe a little bit. So, uh, you know, clinical trials are randomized studies where, one group gets a drug and another group doesn't based on a coin flip, um, you know, just to simplify things. Um, and based on the outcomes, you can, you can ask whether the, the, the drug worked or not, because, you know, the, it, normally if you just look at people who take the drug, they're very different than people who decide not to take the drug in real world data. But with a, with a randomized trial, you can, you can, uh, you can sort of abstract away from that problem um, because you've randomly assigned. So what, what kind of problems can arise in interpreting randomized data and how, how does that generally inform clinical practice? And again, let's just leave COVID aside. What, what were you looking oh, at? Oh, yeah. Well, the major issue with interpreting a randomized trial is the, first off, is the the people who you invite into your trial. It's really important because it does, are those the people who are you're actually going to treat? In general, what, you know, I've seen through, you know, many clinical trials, the, the people who generally run them are, our industry who are about to try to sell their drug that's within the trial. So it depends on what the, what they're trying to do. Sometimes they're going to find the healthiest population in the world, like the strongest, most healthy people. And then they'll give them the drug. And then sometimes they'll give like the sickest people the drug. And the problem is then when we, it's okay. If the drug work, if the trial works, if they ask, the right question. That's the other thing. You have to ask the right question in a clinical trial. So you have to look for a result that uh, the most important part of result is, does it matter to you as a, as a patient? You know, I'm taking this drug. And so there's essentially two ways. There's a surrogate or there's a clinically meaningful outcome or a patient-oriented outcome is the term used. And what that means is essentially a surrogate is something that your doctor tells you on the way to the off in, in the office, a lab value. So like a, like a uh, cholesterol value rather than, am I going to not have a heart attack? That kind of am thing. I gonna, yeah. Am I going to live longer? Am yeah. I going to not have a heart attack? Am I going to go to the hospital more or less? Those are things that I care, you care about as a patient. And you know, if they happen to you, then you're, you don't need a doctor to tell you you're in the hospital. Um, and so it's, then there's these clinical, the surrogate outcomes, which are, a scan that is uh, the size of your tumor. The size of your tumor is, is a surrogate outcome. It's like, oh my God, my tumor's bigger. That sucks. But okay, so you're, if a drug makes your tumor smaller, but then you die more, does that really matter? <laughs> like, so it's like people, it's, it gets confusing, but the question's important. The population's really important. And then, so if you ask the right question and you have the right population, then it's very you could translate it into into practice as knowing what what it is. But typically, there's a lot of interpretation that has to happen of interpreting these randomized trials. They're not so clear cut of just oh oh they found it case case closed. 
we're done and uh everyone we everyone should use this drug now because of uh, a randomized trials found it so just so so you you have this background you like in residency you're doing you're you're in addition to learning to be, be a, a great clinician you're also trying to learn how to think about uh, the inter- interpretation of these this high quality evidence and how do you translate it into into practice uh, you're, you're acutely aware of the limitations of of, of the methods um, and presumably you're like getting you know getting yourself trained up I mean I know you you like you're a, you know an autodidact to, to from what I can tell from from talking with you so you're like you're probably reading everything you possibly can um, and you're and you're and uh, and but then you get to, you you're done with residency you get into clinical practice now I want I want to fast forward to 2020 uh, and we'll come back to the we'll come back to your background about clinical trials because it's going to be really important in the story I think uh, when we when we uh, just uh, just a few minutes from now but like I want to I want to uh, set the stage for that. Um, it's 2020, March 2020. Uh, you're mm-hmm. in uh, you're in, in the ER in Louisiana. You're you know I know I know from like the, sometimes when we talk, you're like calling me in the, at all random hours of the night. You you don't you're, you have this like very strange sleep schedule because you're an ER doc. Um, but you're like you're tell you're 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 seeing um, on the news this news of this massive uh, epidemic about to happen, this pandemic about to happen with this new virus. You're talking to your fellow doctors and ER docs. Tell, tell, can you tell uh, tell tell me what did you see then? What were you what were you seeing then? What were you thinking in say February March 2020? And then what happened after after the pandemic arrived? So um, you know, I could actually even just a month even before um, I was out of the country. I was in in Mexico, and my brother calls me up from New York. It's probably February. February, early, maybe maybe early March, and he asked me about this this coronavirus thing and said, "Oh, what's going on?" And I was like, "Oh, don't worry about that. I'm sure it's just the news, freaking just you know, just creating some you know fear for no reason. Don't even worry about it." And then he was like, "Joe, seriously, I think this is a serious thing. Like, go and like go read about this for me and tell me what to think." And I uh, I so then I uh, sat down and started reading about it while I was. Uh, while I was down at this resort and, uh, and I realized I was like, Oh, 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 this is serious. This is a real, this is going to be something real. And I was, uh, actually for a couple of years before that, I was the, I was the medical manager for Louisiana's, uh, urban search and rescue team. And we annually did a pandemic exercise. And, and I was like, Oh, I was, I told my brother at that moment, I was like, get out of New York city. I was like, they might close the bridges. I was like, this is this is about things are about to get bad. I think, and you need to go somewhere, um, based on uh, just various things that I possibilities of what I was seeing. Uh, I, I was concerned for him, and uh, and then I remember the first case came uh, into Louisiana, and it was a case, and I found a, a woman in the ER who had an X-ray that looked like it. I recognized it because I was reading all these Chinese study in Mexico about what COVID looked like. And I saw her x-ray and I was like, oh God, that's it. That's the COVID. That's it. She's got it. And we ended up... Uh, Ground glass infiltrates was I was what I was reading back then. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, we ended up uh, having to get, they wouldn't, they refused to give her a uh, test because at that time we didn't have enough tests. And if you hadn't, you know, personally met someone from Wuhan, China in the last <laughs> in the last week, they were refusing to give you a test because we didn't have enough. So I ended up getting a CT scan of her because in China they were showing how CT scans were useful in the di- in diagnosing it. And the radiologist calls me. He's like, "Oh my god, this is this is it. This is it." 
And that was the first, that was the second case actually of COVID-19, I think in, in Louisiana, that was the second, she was the second recorded case. Um, my nurses are, and I too, I'm pretty certain there was plenty before that when we think about what those x-rays look like, but in terms of diagnostic. So then after that, within two weeks, it was, it was full on everywhere. ICU full of people with COVID-19 syndrome was the, can the I, first. Can I, let me, Cause I, I'm really curious about the, 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 how you were thinking and how the people around you in who are caring in the front line for COVID patients were thinking at the time. Like, obviously this is an unknown disease. It's, you have estimates from the world health organization saying it's, you know, three, 4% mm -hmm. mortality. It's a, it's, that's a very high mortality rate for any, mm -hmm. any single disease. Um, and you are on the front line, you have a family uh, that you might bring the, the, the disease home to. You're working with nurses and other, other folks who are also on the front line. What's going through your mind and what's going through the minds of the people that are working with you then? I, I could say, I feel what is going through my mind. I think that if I can give you the details of what happened on that day when I found that first lady in the waiting room, because here's this deadly infection. I realized that this lady who had COVID-19 who was sitting in the waiting room for three or four hours. I saw her x-ray. Someone had gotten an x-ray when she'd first gotten there and then they put her back in the waiting room. And I was, and I was like, wait, what's this? Who is this person? Where is she? And they're like, oh, she's in the waiting room. And I, it, my mind just was like exploded. I was, I was terrified. I was like, oh, I was like, we have just, we have just placed a large number of patients at risk. And I was like, who has, who's had contact with this patient? And I like found out everyone who had contact with it was like contact tracing this back from this one. It seems, it seems weird now because we're so used to COVID-19, but back then this was, and no one had seen it. And, uh, uh, it was the middle of the night. It was one or two in the morning. And, uh, I said, listen, everyone, until we figure out what's going on, I want everyone to get an N95 mask on right now. And um, this is probably an airborne disease put on an N95 mask. And I was like, I want everyone. I want triage. I want triage. I want clerk, the clerks to have these masks. And um, and the nurse supervisor says, you, you can't do that. We already had a discussion with infectious disease. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean I can't? we can't get masks. To I was like, the whole hospital's freaking out because they all just got exposed to this deadly disease and, and they can't wear masks. And I was like, they were like, listen, if you want to do that and have, get your staff N95s, you're going to have to talk to the hospital administrator, like the, the CEO of the hospital. And I was like, you want me to wake up the CEO of the hospital two in the morning, say COVID just walk through here Everyone got exposed and now they're scared and they want to have proper protection against it. And you think she's going to say no. And, and, um, and I was like, you're okay, fine. I will call the CEO. I call the CEO. She says, no, okay. <laughs> we've already had a plan set up with infectious disease. And um, I was like, well, your plan has failed. <laughs> Your plans failed, and tonight we can come up with a new plan tomorrow. But tonight, there she was like, "Listen, you're allowed to have an N95 mask as a physician." And I was like, "You see, the problem here is that I'm going to be exposed to this, but so is the clerk, 
So is everyone at triage. So is our, my security guards, maybe. Like, you're talking about everyone getting exposed, but why would I be the only one who can have a mask? And I was like, and what if my mask gets dirty? Can I have more? She's like, yes, you can have as many as you'd like. That's the policy we have. And I was like, oh, okay, I got it. So then what I did that night was I just took, I just went to them. And I said, I need another mask. I need another mask. <laughs> and I just got, I just personally got them and then just gave them out to everyone because that. they weren't, they weren't going to distribute them. I mean, I, I don't think that what I did there helped anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like in retrospect, I mean, at the time, of yes. course, everyone was, I mean, I think people were very, very scared uh, and, yeah. you know, medical personnel too, like they were human. Um, and, and so, and yeah. so like uh, uh, you're, you're, you're looking at this uh, unfold in front of you and you're, you're doing the best you can to try to protect the people around you, take care of your patients. Mm -hmm. what, what's your, like, I, I, I actually did a study and we've talked about this before. So let's just let the audience know that I did a study right around April of 2020 measuring the infection fatality rate of the disease using using say antibody tests we can get into the details of that in some other some other podcast but mm -hmm. but, but the punchline was that it wasn't a three or four percent mortality rate it was it was 0.2 percent uh when you measure how many people have the disease in the population was that the study and, with with I, with Ianides? yeah it was a, it was a study with johnny Ianides. oh man no i emailed uh, let me know let i'll let you know i emailed Ianides directly when that study came out <laughs> And I was like, John, you, you are getting something wrong. You're not, you're not understanding what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing a lot of people die. There's no way that your study is right, John. I was like, you're <laughs> going to make a fool of yourself. I was so confident that you and I didn't even know you were. I forget that you. I forget because I because I knew John from before, but I was um, and we only met after after COVID. But uh, yeah, no, I I thought that. I thought that I was um I wasn't angry at John. I was more just like trying to to warn him, but I think he was he didn't even respond to my email. Well, <laughs> like I got you at the time there was he was getting I, I a lot. <laughs> I got a thousand emails. I got more more people giving comments on that one paper that, than all other papers I've ever written combined in my life. And I've written a lot. Um, oh yeah. I've never had I've never had the gall to to email Johnny and Needies and tell him I think he got something wrong. Like <laughs> like, like 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 one of the most brilliant <laughs> like set biostats guys in the world. The gall to email that guy. Turns out he was right. He was right. Well, I mean, okay. So, but like you know, I I, I can understand, right? You're, what you're seeing yeah. at the time is like, and a lot of people are seeing is like the the, the live reality of what you see in the hospital versus what's mm -hmm. happening in the population more broadly are two different things. And of course, there's two you know two different ways of thinking. But 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 Joe, you're not just you're a clinician. You're an excellent clinician, but you're also a scientist, right? So. Mm -hmm. You're you're okay. So at the at the time you're like okay, this is this is a very serious disease. We need to take severe precautions, at whatever we can do to try to to, to limit the spread of it. We until do we we put figure, in lockdowns until we figure things out. Is the yeah until so you use max max protection until like I would actually even like I, I it's like I remember there were moments where there was a lot of people dying and when the surges would happen, and so you're talking about a one to two month period where it would be the most death anyone would see in a very short time. Uh, so those moments, I like cardiac arrest were coming in and like the nurses were running to like go do CPR. And I'd be like, stop, stop, stop. Put, put on your, put on uh, your suit, put on your suit before you do CPR on this person. Because I mean, also the, the reality is that 
CPR on those advanced COVID syndrome patients who were, I, I definitely didn't, didn't see a resuscitation that ended in, uh, in, in a neuro, neurologically intact survival um, who walked out of the hospital, you know? So th- these were resuscitations that I was concerned were placing not only my staff at risk, they were placing an entire hospital at risk by pumping a chest with, with, with a highly infectious agents that puts out the infectious material into the air while we're all surrounding the body. We also had this, this is my favorite was the, a little glass, not glass, like a Pyrex tube with two hands to put my hands through for the, uh, to intubate a patient and to protect us from their secretions. And I, re- I remember giving, give them giving this to us. And, uh, and I say, I was like, wait, isn't this supposed to have like those gloves, the gloves like that we, to keep the infection away. And they were like, yeah, that's the best we got. Turns out those tubes, what they did was they took COVID and they concentrated it. And so through those two armholes, they would just shoot directly into my face. <laughs> just COVID <laughs> directly. Yeah. Directly. So yeah, that was like, that was like much, so much of these interventions were just us trying to do something. And that that's a perfect example of so much of these things. We tried to do something. It made sense. Like, okay, better than nothing. It was worse than nothing. It was a, it was actually worse than nothing. And but at the time, I used it. I used the glass tube or the Pyrex tube to intubate patients. You know, to pay can place I, can a I breathing. Ask a, um, I don't know if it's an uncomfortable question, but like the the decision, for instance, to intubate was that colored sometimes not just by what was best for the patient, but by a desire to like reduce the amount of exposure of COVID into the hospital air. You know the 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 room and, and exposure to people at large was that or is that was that I mean again this is just this is just your your personal observations I uh-huh. know I mean but it'd be interesting to I think for folks to hear uh, does that ever color doctor's judgment did it color doctor's judgment in twenty twenty I mean it's unhumanly I, understandable of course I, I I think the I I don't have a, a situation where I personally can think of that I I, I did do that. Yeah. Um, but I think that was that was generally a thing that was talked about as as because um, like some of the things you couldn't do certain therapies, for example, in the hospital unless they were intubated because it needed the closed system like you could they they didn't let us use um, nebulizers or um, uh, so anything that like kind of like created more particles, they wouldn't let us use that. So, uh, I, I mean, yeah, I could see, I, I'm certain that a lot of people did get intubated with this desire that it would reduce the local, local risk right, to, yeah. uh, not only the staff, but also to, to the rest, to the other patients within the hospital. I, I think that that was definitely done. I, I, I don't have any personal thought. I, I don't remember what one that I did for that. I feel every, I, I was very much. It's just because of my general attitude for towards medicine is I, this sounds, uh, this is going to sound sort of strange, I guess, but in general, I think that the best thing for a human being is to get the least amount of med- of medical intervention that you need. So if you give someone too much of a medicine, you always will hurt them. And I believe that in medicine in general, when 
in my job, specifically in the ER, a common statement would be, let's do this just to be safe. Yeah. I think when you're like giving out medicines just to be safe, you're on average hurting people. When you're getting tests just to be safe, you're probably on average hurting people. You should get tests when people need tests. You should give medicines exactly when they need them to the right amount that they need. But if you give too much or too little, you are going to hurt people. And so you so you have to be a little careful with how you play with these powerful this, interventions this, we have. This, by the way, Joe, is why I say you're an excellent doctor, because I think that is very wise. A lot of doctors that don't follow that philosophy end up harming patients by doing things that are, that have inconsistent, you know, sort of, uh, 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 sort of not, not excellent evidence in favor of it, ignoring side effects. Um, and you end up, you know, sort of with patients dependent on things that they, they really don't need to be dependent on, uh, conditions I, created by the treatments that, that didn't, that, uh, that didn't need to happen. Um, I, I have the goal. My goal is to be an excellent doctor that that I would want for my own family. But see, that's exactly I, the kind of thing I tell, that doctors say. I tell my nurses <laughs> that I'm concerned that I'm a below average doctor, and I need them to be above average nurses so that my metrics even out and that I look <laughs> at least average. Okay, and, uh, so, um, and they do. They come through. They come yeah, through. Yeah. And they, they, they really. Uh, they and as a team. We, I can promise we're hitting average doctor. <laughs> okay, you know? so I'm going to, I'm going to, let's, let's uh, enough of the false humility. We're going to, we're going to move now from the local, what you're seeing in the ER to the, to the national and international policy. We're, you see, you're seeing like lockdowns happen. You're seeing schools close. You're seeing these like sort of very broad, unprecedented interventions uh, in the name of, you know, essentially protecting hospital systems. And then later uh, with this implied promise that we're somehow going to get rid of the disease. So, like in 2020, um, tell us what your thinking was on that. So, I at the time was, you know, from what I was witnessing, the massive amount of death, I doubted Johnny Anides, which is obviously always a bad, always a bad call. I would say um, I embarrassed for what I did there, but uh, I'll tell you, John says he's almost always wrong. So there's 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 that going for. Him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I find that people who think like that typically are right more. That's the beauty of that. Uh, so, so when I, but when it was happening, I was fully on board. I was, yes, like everything I was seeing, I said, this needs to stop. And everything made sense. Like, logically, I understand how infectious diseases work from a general idea of, you know, goes from one person to the other. If you reduce the number of contacts, this makes sense. Contact tracing made perfect sense. Find the people who have it, stop them from spreading it. I was so, I was, I was a, I was a COVID hawk, I would say. I, I published studies on, um, I wanted, I asked the Louisiana Health Department to allow me to do a study where I was going, listen to how, oh, this is so embarrassing, but I will tell you, it's, it, it never got to happen, but, uh, Thank God I didn't get to put my name on this study. But um, I wanted to take communities within uh, Louisiana and CT scan them if they had COVID symptoms after a negative, if they had a negative test that was suggestive of COVID-19. I said we should CT scan these people so that we know they know because I was like, they're not going to listen to us if they have a negative COVID-19 test. And we still think they have COVID-19. And I we tell them that they're not still going to quarantine themselves. 
they're going to go out and spread it to everyone. And then everyone's going to have COVID. So we need, so we have to tell them they have the diagnosis for sure. That at least I feel comfortable they'll, they'll, they'll contain themselves. And I was doing studies like that. I was doing studies on, uh, concerned about the false negative, the false negative rate of, uh, of the, of the PCR test. I was, I was publishing on, on that. And, uh, I was a hawk. I, I thought that uh, everything ne- we needed to do everything more, and the only reason it failed is because we didn't do it enough. Was <laughs> was my actual? It's actually what okay. I was believing now, at that I, time. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna now again stop you with your with with uh, with this for a second because because uh, very clearly, and I, and, I'll, and I'm gonna tell the audience about how I how we first met so that they that they they can have some background. Uh, we first met at a, uh, at a at a at a little roundtable put on by the governor of Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis, and the, the roundtable was called uh, "Raising the Curtain on COVID Theater." I think it was like late mid twenty twenty one. I forget exactly the mm-hmm. date. Um, yep. And uh, the 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 first time I learned about you, Joe, was at that at that roundtable where you you spoke. And uh, you you apologized uh, for uh, uh, you t- it was, and I was at that roundtable. It was also me, uh, Martin Kuldorf, and Sunetra Gupta. All three of us had written the Great Parenting Declaration, and I, mm-hmm. I I I was so touched, Joe, by that apology. I mean, it wasn't, and I told I think I wrote you afterwards. I didn't. You you had nothing to apologize for. I mean, it was, but it, it really did touch me because you would, you you know it it was it was a, it was like someone who had, had changed his mind. Um, so even in 2020, you're, 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 you're calling yourself a COVID hawk, but you're still thinking like a scientist. You're like, okay, you're questioning yourself. Clearly, clearly you went from that to a, a different position based on your observations, based on scientific data that you were seeing, uh, describe the process as a scientist, how, like the, how, how you go about changing your mind to reach from where you were in 2020, which you described to where, where you were in 2021 and uh and that and that uh and that amazing round table where you 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 and i met oh okay well it's it's sort of the in the early days it's sort of i i it's like i feel bad i'm embarrassed about about kind of some of my views there's nothing like i everyone is wrong as a scientist the issue is not that i mean we just we just are like that is the in fact almost the very definition of being a scientist there's nothing to be embarrassed about about that that's just you know we have hypothesis it doesn't work out but I, i wasn't a scientist when i got to my decisions based on what i was thinking then i was I think I was a victim of, of propaganda. I think in a lot of ways, and I'm embarrassed that that I was because uh, I would have always have expected I would have been smarter. They can't the propaganda can't touch me. I'm I'm so much better. I'm so much smarter than your propaganda. Like the only place I've ever seen propaganda is in museums where they're talking about like the greatest tragedies that have ever happened in the world, and then to be like, wait, I've just been a victim of propaganda, and you're like, wait. The last time I saw propaganda was Vic, was these tragedies of government of governments that were totally manipulating their populations to do terrible things, and, uh, and I was like, oh, this is a that was a that's a that's a sour moment to realize, but um, the initial portion where I realized it was a friend of mine was a a school teacher, and he knew I was this hawk of uh, viewpoints, and he said it's in Louisiana, and. He, in uh, Jefferson Parish of Louisiana, they're trying to open the schools. That's where he works. And he says, come to the school board meeting 
talk against the school, the schools reopening. And this was, must've been the summer of 2020. And, uh, and I said to him, I, I, that was the moment where I realized I was like, okay, my, I'm not, I'm not as hawkish as I, I, that was the moment of the change of the hawkishness was like, I was like, actually, I was like, I'm not so sure that we should keep schools closed. Like kids aren't getting hurt by this. And Going to school is pretty important. <laughs> like, this is not that. It's not like I need. You don't need like a big calculation here, <laughs> like to to figure this one out. Like, there's no real math that you need. It's just this isn't bad for kids, and school's really really good for kids. <laughs> this is not. A, yeah, you don't you don't need to be a scientist to figure this one out. Um, so so uh, I was like, no, I can't speak. But at the same time, I didn't have uh, you know the courage or whatever to say anything. I didn't speak publicly at all on that. I didn't go to this. I should have gone to that school meeting and spoke out against it and said, no, you guys open these schools. You know, what's, you know, what's bad, not going to school. You know, it's not bad COVID for children. This is not a problem, but like I didn't, I was scared. And, um, but, and it's because I thought that I needed so much evidence to be certain. I was collecting evidence at that time. And I, and, and, uh, but like beforehand when I was pushing CT scans, for contact tracing, I didn't have good evidence that that was going to reduce. <laughs> like, I mean, I didn't need good evidence for that because everyone was like, yeah, go, go, stop this disease. If you wanted to do anything that was stopping the disease, you had carte blanche. You could say any ridiculous thing, including me. I was saying CT scan the country. Like, that's a stupid idea. That's a really, that's really bad. And I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm saying it like I'm, I know how bad my idea was. And, um, and, uh, but I was being encouraged. I was getting called onto radio shows and, and news, news people wanted to talk to me because my idea is so good of another way to stop COVID. <laughs> it's the worst idea. But, um, so then, uh, after the school thing happened, uh, I did a study. I was working on another study actually, uh, where on, totally unrelated to COVID. Uh, it's just, was an, it's an obesity study that I'm working on. And so I had a spreadsheet, uh, an Excel spreadsheet of all the countries in the world based on their obesity rate. And, uh, the top, the least obese countries in the world were, you know, just the way I ordered the data that day, were all at the top. And I was looking at them and I was like, huh, that's weird. The least obese countries are the countries that I think have the best COVID policy in the world? I was like, that doesn't seem right. Wait, am I thinking that the reason they have the best COVID policy is because they have the least COVID? And I've back, I've made my, my determination was made backwards from actually judging of their policy, but judging from their result. And the reason that their, that their result, their, their COVID looks so great was not because their policy was because they had no obesity. It was a, all these East Asian nations and they all did great during COVID and, and uh, very little death there because they're so, they have such little obesity and um, it had nothing to do with their policy. And that was, then I ended up doing a study on, on that. And we showed, we showed a really strong correlation where we took four factors, <laughs> obesity, age, island status, and, uh, and border closure, because if you just look at age and obesity across the all of the countries of the world, the correlation's clear, but it's not that great. And I realized it's pretty obvious why. And it's we have Australia, 
We have New Zealand. We have five or six or eight Pacific islands that have high obesity rates. And they all have pretty much had zero COVID because it turns out island closure, the, the border closure works for island nations. They're able to actually use these policies to, it does work. I think it's but pretty clear cut. Only the border closures, not the, the random stochastic lockdowns, school closures and all that. I mean, I remember reading oh. that paper being struck by that, uh, that finding. I was like, you know, why? Uh, and I also remember in 2020, Australian colleagues were writing me, telling me, you know, look, there really isn't any COVID here, Jay. You know, there isn't, and there isn't even any lockdown here. We just, yeah. uh, we, we can act, we can go to concerts, we can do normal things. Uh, but you, the only thing that can happen is you can't, uh, if you're an expat, you can't come home and visit mom, even if she's in the hospital and dying, yes. right? That, that, yes. That's not, that's not allowed. Um, so yeah, that's some parts of the lockdown policy, but um, not a hundred, yeah, not a hundred percent. And uh, well, that just border closure. It was just yeah. border closure. And once they got rid of the virus, they, which is a dream, but the problem is for non-island nations, um, it's not, that's not a, it's not an I, option because I, it's, because it's poor. I didn't know you'd wrote that paper. I, I remember reading that paper being struck by it. It was like that. I mean, I learned a lot from that paper actually. It changed. Yeah. It changed my entire view because I realized at that moment in time that the reason Norway has a 500 fold increase in COVID infections, death, whatever it is over, over, uh, Thailand is not because Thailand was doing 500 times better policy than Norway. It's because they were really skinny. Yeah. It's just a really skinny people. Well, I mean, actually, one, one thing on the islands is real. I think uh, people, uh, like if you think through the ethics of it, okay, you, you close your borders to, to the rest of the world for, uh, uh, and you successfully eradicate COVID for a time. Um, and every time the, the COVID pops up, you go to a snap lockdown uh, and then, and, and you keep the borders closed. The only end point of that is a, is a vaccine. And it's a vaccine that can't, because otherwise you're just disconnected from the world forever. And that's not feasible. Um, you know, and I the think ethics of that, though, Joe, think about this. You can't even develop the vaccine in those nations. You're depending nope. on the rest of the, because you can't test, unless you have COVID, you can't test the vaccine. And so the ethics are like, let's, let's let everybody else get sick so that we can be healthy. And that's essentially, that's essentially the ethics of that policy. I'm not. I mean, I'm not, yeah, of course, that's not, that's not your decision. I, to make it, but like, I but don't, is- I don't, uh, I think that, uh, you know, what I learned, I think from that study, it was that for Island nations, they have a choice to make that they have an ability to lock their borders, do these crazy various lockdowns that, uh, can control COVID and they can, that's the thing. They can do it. It's an, option that's on the table for them that's kind of how i would take it yeah. now for the lot the non-island nations what i realized is because our our data was something like between seven it was about essentially with those four factors it's 70 something 74 percent of uh the association of the covid burden is explained by those four factors when you look at the interaction basically so that the interaction explains okay Island nations, unrelated. If you're obese, if you're an obese, older country, then, and you block your borders, you can block it. You can. It's an option. I'm not saying it's a good idea. That's Those are two different things. Okay. And, and, and just to be clear, they're two different things. But it's to, just, but for the non-island nations, I realize that all the things that I 
have been pushing for before that study. I was like, everything that I've been doing, the things that I've been doing that made my life way worse and everyone's life worse way around me and the entire world's life worse, I realized were not doing their job and that they're, if, if they have any effect, I realized it has to be so tiny that it, it, it's, it's, it's almost going, I realized that it, first of all, my first initial thing was holding, oh my God, I need to get this data out there so that people can learn how to measure the effectiveness of these lockdowns because they're going to, they're going to not account for these confounders and not realize that, oh, the, the country that did this, maybe they were older and fatter and, and they were going to not, and, and that's why they're, they had a problem, but their policies were actually, redu- and I was like, wait a second, no, because if you had these other like three, four factors, which was like population density and so on, like a couple other random demographics, it was like 82% was explained by just demographics. And it was like, okay, you know, association studies, if you get to 80 something percent, the rest of that's mostly going to be randomness that's between these nations. So, so it's like, I realized like, wait, the policies really can only make a difference at like, I was like a 5%. Like we're talking about a difference in COVID-19 problems by like a five, even if you had the the greatest, the most perfect of policies in non-island nations, we're talking about like a 5% sort of thing with COVID-19. And uh, I realized that was the thing about this, a point about this. What you're describing is you're looking, you're looking at data. You're, you're doing your best to analyze as a scientist, but you, and you come into this with preconceptions though, completely on the opposite side of where you, where you yes, ended up, yes, yes, right? Very much so. <laughs> I mean, that's actually rare, rare even in scientists. What I found in my my experience, it's 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 very common that scientists will color their view of the data based on their pre- preconceptions. Um, although we tell uh, kids when we when we train them in science not to do that, like we want to let the data speak. Um, it's rare. It's rare. I mean, I just, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's definitely commend. I mean, I mean, that's something I, I, I've always, I've admired about you in getting to know you is that you are going to let the data speak. Um, and it's, but it's, it is, it's, it's hard, right? And it is. Yeah. Okay. Is. Okay. Now I, yes. I don't want, I just, hard. we're 45 minutes and I want to keep, make sure we, we stay on time. So I want to, I want to make sure we get to the, the, to the, to the, uh, uh, to the, to the Pfizer study that you do. Oh, okay. Um, so now we're going to jump ahead to 2021. Um, the vaccine rolls out, uh, and there's a randomized study in, done, done in 2020 that shows 95% effectiveness for the Pfizer vaccine against symptomatic infection. Um, they don't report a ton of side effects in the trial. In fact, it looks like a relatively safe, safe vaccine. Um, as it as it rolls out into the population, there there's like some controversy over. Um, you know, maybe it's having a, a high, an elevated rate of myocarditis in young men. They're, months, they're, that's months, months later. That's yeah, right. months later. And then there, then there are people who are like saying uh, crazy things, which turn out to be like probably true, which is like, you know, it's having menstrual abnormalities in, in some women. Um, there's some, there's some, there's some like, you know, there's some, there's, and then there's like really crazy things about 5G, which turn out not to be, you know, what turn out not to be true, like microchipping or whatever. Right. Um, and, but the, the <laughs> I whole, actually never even understood the, I don't, I, I can't I, actually, I, never, I actually don't understand what the 5G conspiracy I I mean, I was. No one's explained it to me, but I, I know, I know there's something that has, there's something that did have to do with 5G. I'm okay. just not even so, sure what it was. But, but, but here's yeah. the point. Here's the point. 
if you're whether oh, you're magnets, right? You, There's a magnet. Oh, I, I mean, this one I actually tried. I brought a magnet with me when I got <laughs> vaccinated just just to see. <laughs> Anyways, whatever. Um, Personally, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like I like if that if it made you magnetic, that why would you even complain about that? That's why well, you that's, know my doing... friend. I actually have a friend. I swear to God, who put a magnet into his finger. Dude, put you can't like, go to an MRI scanner. What if you need to go to an MRI scanner? You don't want – you don't want you, – you, He put it into his finger because he thought it would give him like a sixth sense. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. He had to get it removed. You're getting, you're getting like, me wait, 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 He got it removed much. five years later because he got grossly infected. Joe, Joe you're showing everybody <laughs> how our conversations normally go. <laughs> we just go yeah. off. But no, like the, a, magnet, the magnet in the finger is uh, – I'm just sorry. Okay. The conspiracies. Yeah. They so were, so those, so some so of them are silly. Here's my point. You have you have a lot of uh, you have this new vaccine that's rolled out to the entire world. You have this massive propaganda engine describing how how important it is that everyone has to take it, regardless of what their risk factors is. Even kids as young as six months old have to take it. Um, you have some reports which look um, concerning and potentially legitimate that there are some side effects in some subgroups. And you also have a lot of crazy things out there. Mm-hmm. You have a public health authority that that is. Uh, that, that they that basically the idea for them is we have to convince the world to take it, and so if you have conversations, even legitimate conversations about side effects, while well, you're doing public health a lot of harm, right? So you have, I mean, that's the situation we're talking about in 2021. Yeah. And now, now, Joe, you did a study which I want you to tell the audience about, where you managed to get a hold of the data from the original randomized trial and wrote about side effects. So first, can you just describe the study? Yeah, sure. Um, so what we did was uh, we, we took the original trials. We, we took the FDA briefings, which is these 400 page reports. And we looked for, we were looking for serious adverse events and we're doing it for both, uh, both messenger RNA vaccines, Pfizer and also Moderna. And we, the goal of it was trying to uh, essentially take a, a magnifying glass to the serious adverse events to get rid of the statistical noise. We said, we're just going to look at these adverse events of special interest was the, the goal. This is a list created by a group called the Brighton Collaboration that uh, is a list of, it's a list endorsed by the World Health Organization. This is a very proper, proper group. And they create a list of things that are potentially caused by the vaccine. So you get rid of, um, you know, all the things like if a guy got shot, you know, after he took the vaccine, like we don't think it's related to the vaccine. So we, we don't want to let's not not I'm not saying that lots of people got shot after taking the vaccine. But like it's the idea is to take away the things that are unrelated because it's too much. We call it's called statistical noise. You take it away. So we wanted to close in on the adverse events that matter. And uh, we looked at serious adverse events, which are, to the name, serious. It's life-threatening events that get you hospitalized or cause you permanent disability. This is essentially the definition of a serious adverse event. So you don't want one. And we looked at the difference. The, The biggest surprise of our study was when we just counted the number of serious adverse events in both trials. Because when we counted the ones in the Pfizer trial... Before we did our magnifying glass, the Pfizer trial had just more serious adverse events in the vaccine group at a rate of about, it was around 36% higher and about one in 555. 
And our okay. minds were blown when that happened. Well, okay. Because- so let me let me just 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 so you, before you move on from that, the way you did that was really interesting because it wasn't just that you know you sat down and counted. Like you actually had a process for deciding for each reported event. Was it associated? You had a you had a you had such like a jury, if I understand. Of, no, of no, 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 no. This is actually before that. Okay. This is the first result. So there's two. One is that the the jury it was which was two people, me and uh, one other other uh, you know another clinician, where we decided does it fit onto this list, and then we have to agree, and if we don't agree, it goes to a third person, and we're blinded. That's one thing. I'm not talking about that. Blind, blind, about, that? So describe what does that mean? What does that blinded mean? Like you means you didn't know if the patient was a placebo, had received placebo or yes. had received the vaccine, right? Yeah, I didn't yeah. know which group they were. And it said the guy had a heart, there was heart attack, right? Right. Uh, myocardial infarction, the term for heart attack. And then it would be like two, zero. And I, I don't know what's what. And um, basically I'm just... I don't know what's the vaccine, what's the placebo, and then I have to decide. And you're looking at every single patient in the trial. Every single serious adverse event. Every single event in the trial for every single patient in the trial. Yeah, and that's that's how we created the, pulled out the ones that that were determined by this list, is two clinicians looked at them and said, could, we said, could these be, essentially? Like, could this be that? Is, and um, so we were just, we we, we were sensitive in, in our sense, we were like, that, is that likely to be that sort of thing? We said, okay, yeah, because if you overdo it, you're you're just going to add a little bit more randomness to your result. But like, if you underdo it, you might miss the result. Is, this, was the this concern. Is, so your 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 training uh, and your experience in your residency and learning to interpret randomized trials is paying off in this. Like you've, you've yes. structured your yes. thinking on this. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, but the thing that was the most remarkable finding, I think, of our whole study. And a thing we never ever get critiqued on is that this when we just counted no, no nothing fancy just counted the whole all the numbers in both groups. There's just more serious adverse events that happen in the vaccine group, and um, it's you know com- confidence intervals doesn't cross one, like it's thirty six percent one in five hundred fifty five, and we were like, what, what? There was more serious adverse events in the vaccine group in the Pfizer trial. That's not what they said to us. They said that did, that it was the same between groups. What yeah. is happening here? And the reason for it is because they counted the number of participants who experienced a serious adverse event. And we were counting the number of serious adverse events that happened. And this distinction, it's so silly. It sounds like a silly argument that's set, and it is. I think because the reality is having more serious adverse events, you don't have to be a statistician to understand that that's bad. Yeah. That's, a, that's a bad thing. You don't you know, want for, I mean, the, you know, In the context of the trial, the tri- I mean, during the, I think the two months of the trial or three months of the trial that they're following patients, there were actually more deaths, I think, in the vaccine arm by one or two. Slightly. Yeah, like, like then, one, then one more, but I mean, there, there's no. There's the point is it didn't protect you against dying during the during the during the time of the trial, like during the yes, but only but it only prevented two deaths from COVID, so it's like kind of and it's it, but you know just just so just so you know like the the vaccine um, trials for the for the 
adenovirus vaccines, like the yes. J&J, found the opposite. That, in fact, it did protect against, and, and I think it was like actually statistically significant, like if you, in a reanalysis that Christine Stable-Ben did. So you have two different I, vaccine technologies. One shows it protects against death and the other doesn't. And yet uh, Western governments, especially the United States, go with the one where the trial shows that it didn't, that, that they did, failed to show that it protected against all-cause deaths. I I know. I, that, that is a very difficult thing for me to comprehend because those now those two vaccines I believe are off the market in in all countries. Yeah. Um. So those vaccines have now I guess been decided that they were too dangerous for the public. Yet, yet in our clinical trials, those made people live longer. If you right. got those in the clinical trial, you live more. But if you got the the messenger RNA ones, you didn't live longer. So so I that is a. I, I don't exactly understand, except that like maybe because of the uh, that clear problem with the uh, the clotting problem, because we don't just when we pull a typically when we pull a vaccine off the market before COVID-19, if there was like a slight problem, we pulled that we pulled it off the market for the smallest problem. <laughs> we would just pull it. We'd be like, oh, oh it's possible. That this yeah. thing is bad. We wouldn't. I mean, it's like there was like no wait. rotavirus vaccine. Yeah, um, we didn't where wait. you just had a, a few cases of interception. It's a treatable condition, but uh, very treatable. Yeah, but it's then not, you don't want it. No, of course you don't <laughs> want it. Especially as a baby, you don't want you don't want no. your baby to have it. But like you know, but we pulled it for because we don't want vaccines on the market that cause even you know lo, even some rates of adverse events. Right. Um, yes, we pulled every. We. I mean, the reason. The population has such trust, I think, has had trust in vaccines is because of that, is that anytime there's like an inkling of, hey, uh oh, something doesn't look good here. Maybe something's wrong. We've pulled it. And uh, so maybe for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, that is maybe just typical of like how we would have treated normal vaccines. They had this the problem with uh, with uh, various types of blood clotting issues and. So, so maybe that's actually not the weird. Maybe the Johnson. It's weird that it had the mortality benefit. That's in and uh, the the weird thing is that is that our the treatment of the messenger RNA vaccines that there is our study, which is the that that there was more serious adverse events in the Pfizer vaccine group, and uh, okay, so- first of all, that it was approved. With that, yeah. Okay. With so, that. so you 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 have this result. This is like in when 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 was this? Like I think in like late 2021, early 2022. You have this result, um, and yeah. uh, it's like published finally in in like this very prom, uh, prestigious, prominent journal, like Vaccines, I think. Right. So you must you must must have been had a a very fun peer review fight to get to get that through. But like you you get it through, and it's and it's a, it's peer reviewed science. Um, it was uh, just denied by five journals uh, with really not to peer review. And uh, just like, you know, how peer review works, it's a slot machine. Prestigious journal, right. And a very, very prominent journal, right. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a high impact. Oh, journal. Yeah. So, okay. So you have this, this, this piece of science, which is actually quite nice. Um, what do you, so, so what is the reaction of the scientific community to this? And what's your, what, what did you face after you published first the, the preprint of this and then late, like in that fight, because I, I watched it play out on, on, on Twitter about some of the attacks you received. I just wanted to give the audience some sense of that. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird, I guess, because I, you do a study like that and typically you're like, I've, 
none none of my co-authors, there's seven of us, we all were working for free. <laughs> all like we're just like concerned for you're the population. Pharma didn't fund this study, is what you're trying to tell me. No, pharma definitely <laughs> didn't fund this study. But like we're also not even paid. We have no there's no grant. This is our free we're using our free time to do this because we're concerned about this result that is obviously should raise concerns about this vaccine and people should be aware of it. And, uh, and we released it and it was, um, yeah, no, we were, um, we just been, since then we were just demonized in, in, in the media on Twitter. It's a, it's a whole other thing. It's, um, uh, um, like people, we were accused of fraud is, is my, this is my favorite actual, um, critique. Some of the critiques of our study were good. Actually, they had good critiques. Actually. I want, did those critiques. I like them. And because we released it initially as a preprint and the critiques were good, the good ones we used. And then we did sensitivity analyses to see if those critiques held up and they didn't. And our, and it was still a problem. So like we, I thought though, some of the critiques were good. Some of them were ad no, hominem like, attacks. Yeah. Some, a lot of it was exact. I mean, I felt faced, I had that same experience with Twitter. Like sometimes it's a very, very constructive thing where you, you learn, you say, okay, I wasn't thinking about this yeah. way. Um, you know, on, on scientific studies, but on the other hand, like a lot of it is just pure vitriol. So like you're, you're facing like this idea that you're an anti-vaxxer because you have this yeah. result. I mean, uh, just, just, so it's just how many vaccines? I, mean, you I was accused of fraud, of fraud. fraud. I'm accused yeah. of fraud for, for doing a study for free, for free. <laughs> like, like with my spare time, like, 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 like not like neglecting my family <laughs> to work on a pro a major project for no money. And um, wh I don't understand why people think, oh, I'm just doing this for, for fraud. Like what fraud you typically make money, don't you? <laughs> well, I mean, so, I wouldn't know, Joe. <laughs> I think, I think people who do fraud typically like do, get I mean, something some from benefit, you would think. All so, I've gotten is, 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 is a uh, personal attacks on my reputation and, and um and so you it's know, like and, uh, and the and the, the anti-vax label right that like this crazy yes. especially as, as you're you're an advocate of vaccines you probably have vaccinated i don't know how many people in your in your career right it's you know it's just it doesn't well every time someone shows up with a cut we always we do give tetanus. <laughs> we, give a, we give a tetanus vaccine yes i like I, you know you, you rub your elbow yeah tetanus we probably overdo the tetanus i, I would say in the er there there's an over, probably uh, so an over. So, so but, like, but yes. I think here's the thing, Joe. Um, My kids are vaccinated. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> exactly. the, the, the thing is that the, the, these these attacks are not in in the in the in the is not they're not aimed at like discovering scientific truth. They're not, what they are is essentially is a it's a it's a mechanism of undermining you, and by mm -hmm. undermining you, getting rid of this inconvenient result. Right, it's, it's a mechanism by which the consensus is held. I, I think that the terminology is stupid, and it's they're saying anti-vax, they're throwing anti-vax, and it is it's scary actually because it's a uh, it's career ruining in in our world, right? Like, no, if you are an anti-vaxer, you're like I personally, I I chosen to not, I I chose to do science outside of academia for my own reasons, but because of how I'm now labeled. I, I don't believe that I have an opportunity to, if I change my mind, to go back into academia. I have been probably uh, blacklisted 
from this because of the the term analogy of anti-vaxxer that that has been put onto me and uh, it's such a stupid term because anti like i you want to give the right medical intervention to the right person at the right time like if i if i'm like if if one surgeon like says says i think you need to get this surgery and then you go for a second opinion and he's like, I don't think you need this surgery. I think you're going to be fine without it. Does the patient go, yes. Anti-surgery. Anti, anti-surgery person. <laughs> Are you an anti-surgery? Like, like no. Like, like deciding that a single intervention you, you, to be oh, – what about this, right? The, the CDC doesn't recommend um, that Americans get the uh, tuberculosis vaccine because their risk of tuberculosis is so low that they determine that the, the risks of the BCG vaccine outweigh the benefits. The CDC, anti-vaxxers, not taking the tuberculosis. Like, this is such a dumb terminology to just put onto people who raise a question about one vaccine. And, like, I'm not even here saying to get rid of the vaccine. I'm, I'm like, this is a problem. Hey, maybe it's okay in, in elderly people that it's going to out the benefits are going to outweigh the harms. Maybe they won't. I don't know. But I would love to have the data to be certain. I would, before we recommend it for everyone in the world to take, maybe maybe we should do a good study and figure this one out. Or we could just recommend it to everyone before we are certain about what's going to happen. I, that, so I, I'm just pro-certainty. I'm pro-certainty uh, on, on knowing well, I mean, I what... Think, I think you just raised a really important point about uh, a couple of really important things. First, um, you know, like a, a vaccines are are amazing technologies. I, I think that they're that like you know the smallpox vaccine eradicated this this scourge of mankind that that it killed, you know, countless millions of people throughout the ages. Um, you, you and you know that that, that yes. you you have like you have vaccines like, uh, you know the, the polio the, vaccine, polio vaccine, which are which you know you, it basically. Yeah, it's an enormous had, had a hiccup at the beginning, a manufacturing error, even, and that's, that's it's true, an interesting they, story. They identified and fixed, because, and they fixed because, it. And yeah. they apologized. They apologized. It fixed. The key thing here is that these are technologies that are are excellent because we hold them to high standards. Yeah, that's the and only the, reason they're so good. Yes, <laughs> if you don't hold them to high standards, they would be terrible. Yes, they've been held to very high standards until now. Right. And so like, yes, vaccines are, are quite safe because we ever since polio vaccine came out and we had that disaster that happened with the polio vaccine where there was a manufacturing error that caused like something, I don't even know, a couple tens of thousands of children to have, to have polio. Uh, I, um, after that, we, we changed everything. We, it was the, it was actually the problem that happened from that polio vaccine that led to the safety mechanisms that I was thinking it was 1955 that since probably, probably they got put in place probably, you know, the next five years or so, but like since 1960, they were doing this correctly. They were really looking at every man, how it's manufactured, how it's done, how like, and then for this, eh, yeah, it does. Like, like all, all all bets are off. I mean, it just—it's just—it's such an odd thing. And I, I, just to just to close close this off, uh, and and you know, we've, I've I've kept you much longer. Than I'm sure your wife and, and kids are going to be really quite unhappy with me. No, but like you're that, good. But, My kids um, still napping. You're good. But but the thing the thing is is like, how do you create a consensus in science when there isn't one? 
how do you create a consensus in medicine? I think your story is a, is a great window into how it actually happened during the pandemic, that people thought that scientists all agreed on on lockdowns, on vaccine safety, it, uh, even though scientists had considerable uh, disquiet about all of these things, that we were still looking at data, we were like arguing with each other, but yet in the public mind, you had this sort of propaganda campaign essentially telling people, yeah, every scientist agrees with Tony Fauci on all of these See, a- aspects. I I believe that um, when people have to say that there's a consensus, there is not, there can't be a consensus because when, when there is a consensus, there's no one discussing it. There's no issues. There's nothing to debate. Like, like, go find me someone who's like, I, I believe penicillin cures syphilis. I'm certain, actually. Penicillin <laughs> cures syphilis. Go find me someone to debate me on this. Like, this is, we can, so when you have certainty on this, that's when you have consensus. We have consensus that penicillin treats syphilis. Like, this is, like, like so, like, when they say consensus, that, just by saying consensus, you're just like, a lot of the people who we're allowing to speak generally agree with me. And at least they're not speaking out publicly against me is what, is what they mean by consensus right now. And, you know, it's, and, and I think that this is a problem because, you know, even take this COVID vaccine, right? Like you have, I am a thing I I bring up is uh, this idea of a, a, a study that like a revolutionary idea of a two or three year vaccine study, like, it's actually pretty short for vaccine studies, but imagine we did a two to three year vaccine study on the COVID vaccine. And um, imagine after uh, three years, we tested, we we're looking at all cause hospitalizations after, uh, you know, what would be the result? And we could break it down by age group, young people, old people at risk. What would be the result of that study? And you know what the answer is? Do you have an answer? You know what the answer would be? I don't. I don't know the answer actually. Yeah, no one knows the answer. Yeah, that's bad, right? Isn't that yeah. a bad thing? No one knows the answer to that. So we just told the entire world to do something, and it's possible that it makes more hospitalizations. It's possible it makes less hospitalizations. I don't know. You don't know because you're you're an honest scientist on this, and um, but that's terrifying to most people but that's a factual yeah, I mean, statement think, you know like just again let's just try to give the devil his due like i think th- this was a very scary pandemic you know like especially when in the initial days and it, it, things went and you want to try to you may need to say okay well these these very very high standards we hold to evidence uh, might be reasonably scaled back in this in this in this one case um sure. but i still think i do think i think even when you do that you have an obligation to try to uh, to scale back as little as you can to to actually ask for this. I mean, I think the boosters are a perfect example of this. You have yeah, we're not studying them anymore. They're not. They're not studying them. Like they're not even asking for studies. No. Why? It makes no. It makes so like yeah. Sure, I, I, I'm with you in that. For the elderly people who had actually an emergency, the people who I was seeing in my emergency room who were filling my ICUs, these elderly nursing home patients, high risk patients. Sure. 
there's no reason not to have done a two, three-year trial on healthy younger people to make sure we don't harm everyone. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to give something to everyone, yeah, like you need, you don't need to just think it's a good idea. Like our, it's our best guess, our best yeah. guess is, is this is a good idea based on what we know now, which isn't actually that much, but based on what we currently know, it's a good idea. And also just so you know, We've messed this up a lot in the past, just so you know. We have a lot. We've made a lot of errors on this. Like like in our medical history, we we recommended things that were that hurt lots of people. Just yeah, we we're going to give lobotomy a Nobel Prize, Joe. <laughs> no, um, it's like kind of like we learn nothing. It's like we learn nothing as we move forward. And um, I, I'm hopeful. I'm really hopeful, actually, that this event because I think this pe- people are. I don't believe that my study is the confirmatory study that says like, okay, vaccines are the worst thing ever. Everyone needs to stop taking them. No, no, no. I think that it's a part of the data set. It adds to the data set that um, needs to all be put together of everything that we know. And um, we, we got to put a picture, put it together. And, and no one actually knows the answer to that question that I, that I said there, if we did the trial for three years, do you get hospitalized more or less? And that's the answer we want to know. And no yeah. one knows that answer. And so, um, we're probably not going to ever know that answer is, is, is the truth. And that's sad, but I think that the amount of people who've been brought in, brought into being aware of, of these limitations of our, of that, what's happening with our, our FDA, that they're approving things and they're kind of lying to our public and, and, and claiming certainty safe and effective. When that's false, a false statement. And well, are you, I would just to be again, just to just to, to uh, be as fair as you can. We don't know. Please, true. Yes, we don't know if it's true. Yeah. No, it, no, it's no, 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 Because no. safe means no chance of risk. Oh, that's true. You can't say safe. No, you're right. Unless you are certain, there's no risk. Yeah, you're so, right. You're right. So that's false to say safe. Yeah, you're right. And um, yeah, no, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm. Look, it's possible. You're not saying say, it's unsafe. You're saying no, it's, it's not, not right yeah. to say it's, it's, it's false to say yes. that it's safe. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. That's a good point. <laughs> yes. It might. Oh yeah. It might be. Maybe my study is totally wrong and all the other things are, are totally just random, random associations that are, that are. I mean, the, the point is like this, if, if we were, had been as serious with this vaccine as we are normally with testing and evaluation for safety and vaccines, we would have done things very, very differently. Like we, as, we as a regular, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have approved it because after six months when it stopped working and then they had to refigure it out. Like, I mean, imagine in that. Oh, I forgot in my hypothetical study, I would imagine that we would in that hypothetical study, people would get boosted based on whenever the CDC had had a had a brain fart and said, OK, time to boost. Oh, what are you basing that on? I just nice. think so. Like, let's do it. Boost, boost boost now it's the time boost like that that so i would so i imagine that in that study the people would get perfect boosting timing based on cdc recommendation which is based on zero experimental evidence and so they would just make up a time when they think it's the right way to do it and hoping that it's perfect <laughs> and hoping that they'd make those decisions perfectly what would the result be because that's a, or even an alternative is, what if they figured out, actually, studied it well, and said, what is the right amount of time to get a boost? 
for the different age groups. A crazy idea, actually figuring out how to how to use a drug before you give it to a population. That would be a wild, a wild idea of how to how to do something. But even, so imagine we did that too. What would be the result of that trial? Would also be and we don't know the answer we're so far from the answer to this because we don't even know the right way to boost it we don't even if it even is useful we don't even know how to use it so it's like do you see how far away we are from being recommending this into human population and i'm the one who's fringe i'm the i'm the fringe act <laughs> no, I'm, here. The, I'm, the, I'm the fringe you're the fringe yes uh, yeah, you know, the thing, get along. The thing get along. about that is like the population at large is mostly seen through it. Like you look at the uptake of the last booster, it was like, what, 15, 20% of the population. Um, the recommendation to vaccinate six-month-olds, I, I mean, I said 5, 10% of the of, of kids, that, of, of the parents that have done that. I think for the most part, people understand this, yeah. even as the regulators and the pharma companies how, don't. How many, do you know, what percent, do you know what percent of uh, like young children got the vaccine? Like uh, under five? I think it's on the order of 10, 15%. I'm not, I'm yeah, not I, I've heard yeah. under 10. Yeah. Can you imagine? I've never heard. Imagine a vaccine recommended by our CDC that parents unanimously said no to. Yeah, that's they a have, shocking. They, we they've are. Thrown away their, they've thrown away their. their Credibility, uh, reputation, credibility. Exactly. They, 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 you no longer can can look at them and say, yeah, they, they have my, uh, my kids' best interests. Uh, and the the really terrible thing. Do you do you trust them? Like, I mean, <laughs> no, I do not. No, people people have made the logical. But the Joe, thing is, they Joe, thought the, people the were so stupid. The they thought people were so stupid. And the and heartbreaking the, 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 thing, Joe. The heartbreaking thing. They they there's those some of the vaccines that they recommend are really really important to children's health. Yes, They're not wrong yes. about that. I don't. Well, yes, I don't want to start treating those conditions in the ER. Um, yeah, exactly. You don't want to see measles. You don't want to see mumps. You don't want to see rubella. You don't want to see diphtheria. You don't want to see any of those things. I'd be fine with rotavirus. (laughs) (laughs) Rotavirus is like, oh, I see that. That's fine. But uh, like, yes, but some of these are pretty bad. And and that's also part of the problem here is that they, there are so many important vaccines that are on that list. And then the CDC like threw in a couple ones that are like, okay, that's not, like, why would you require yep. something that's that that's sort that even other country that other countries don't even recommend? And so, like, yeah, you, so it's it's now let now people are going to wake up. They're seeing there's a problem, and now they're in a lot of trouble because they don't. How do you navigate as as a as a private citizen who doesn't who's not educated in how to read through all of this? I I, I feel terrible. That they have lost that 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 our, our our federal government, who should really be the guidance for people to to how to make these decisions of what what thing what medical product should be put into your own child, and it is is incredibly sad that that I think that our that our government has failed our population on this, and um and it's becoming clear, and the ones who read about it find out that like okay maybe wait you gave my kids a hepatitis B vaccine. On the day they were born, I didn't have hepatitis B. The way they catch it is from me having hepatitis B. Wait, how did they catch hepatitis B? Oh, they have sex with a person who's from another country because we don't have the disease here in America. Oh, how would my zero-day-old child catch that then before she leaves the hospital? 
right. I mean, so like, it yeah, like, so, like, so you, like, so like I'm not, I'm not saying I took the hepatitis B vaccine when I was 18 years old. Yeah, there, because there, there, I, I was. I mean, I did when I entered med school is when I took it. I think, uh, but like, I, I the 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 um the thing about that is like, I think you know they maybe maybe their reasoning is well, you have a population essentially as a captive population, mm-hmm. and you you, have, you you do it now, you don't have to worry about it later in life. But if you can say that, then you should be honest with the public and reason. Yes. And that's, that's, just, yes. that's all you have to do, right? You have to say, okay, this, and this is the reasoning, then that's the reasoning. I, I, I think that that kind of credibility, building that kind of credibility is incredibly important. That honesty I, is incredibly important. You're not- I would say that's true for this entire thing we're discussing, right? COVID vaccine. Okay, guys, this is what we know. There is a possibility... Because we just built this thing. There's a possibility things can go wrong. But in our opinion, I mean, in my, the way I would have done it personally is I would have tested it in personally in older people, not in the healthiest people in the world, which is what they did. But um, and been like, OK, here what we know is this disease is pretty is pretty damaging for you for elderly people. This does look promising. Just like when we give out like a cancer treatment, it looks promising. We're not 100% sure that it's going to work, but we think that the benefits of this are going to outweigh the risk. But, you know, it's possible that we're wrong, and it's possible we're going to find out later that, that this wasn't a good decision. But right now, we think this is the best. And if, if, if that was, that's how we're supposed to do medicine. We're supposed to be honest with our patients. We're supposed to be honest with our population. And I don't know where public health came up with this idea that it's okay to lie. And to manipulate the population to do what they want, what they want them to do, because they think it's a good idea. And it's not like public health has the greatest record for getting things right, that, that, they, that they can just presume that, that they get everything right and, and everything's going to go perfectly. Because th- this is, that is a very, because like with medicine, we're careful. Like we're usually careful. Not with this vaccine, we haven't been. But we're usually pretty careful. We try to we try to be as careful as we can. And, and the other Public health, like we make revisions. Like we, you know, well, if something like you, 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 okay, just like take for example H. pylori and ulcers, right? Like I I learned in medical school in the nineties that ulcers are caused by like caffeine and chocolate and oh, stress. You, in medical school, you were before the H. pylori thing. Mm-hmm. I was before H. pylori. And, oh and so, wow, dude, I'm old, I'm very old. Um, and you're so, pretty you old man <laughs> but there, because you're joking before. And like you know it's like you know we revised the view based on actual science like, of course it took yeah, much longer than it should have uh, it, but but uh, but we but not that much longer it took it, it took a couple years <laughs> I, I mean you know but but the point is that like that's that kind of humility is is p- part and parcel of medicine like we we don't know everything we can't possibly know everything and we're going to learn uh, if you don't have that humility about the things that we do now, uh, I mean, we say, okay, this is the science. You have to follow the science. Do- patients are going to stop trusting us as oh, reality. Oh, I mean, start- it's you know, done. It's already done. We're already past that point because our public health officials, I think, have got, went so far with their certainty. I, I, you know, I put it like this. I've uh, talked about this uh, somewhere else where I say that Anyone who's confident in that idea that I talked about with that trial, that they know that um, if we did that trial for all cause hospitalization, and it was, let's say it was 20 million people study, you know, the, I'm talking about the super hypothetical study, and it was 
boosted perfectly. All ages, six months on through. All cause hospitalization. What would happen? You you told me. I have no idea what will happen because you don't know. That's the honest. That's the. Yeah. How can, the, I mean, how can, I mean, it's so and it seems like it's so hard for public health people to say it's that. Obvious. It's yes. It's an obvious one. Yeah. But the problem is they are confident and certain that they know the answer. And their answer is everyone six months and above will have reduced hospitalizations if we do this study there's actually we are so certain about it that you don't have we to don't do even that. think should do the study yeah that's how certain we are and then there's another group then there's another group who's so i what i'm saying about that group first is they're irrationally they're irrationally confident that's what i call them there's an irrationally confident group and it includes our government officials which is a very bad have irrational Irrationally confident government officials is really bad. Having irrationally confident anyone is bad. But then there's another group on the other side who's certain that if that trial happened, that all age groups would go get hospitalized more. They would get hospitalized more from super cancer, turbo cancers, and everything else that that, that they yeah, that there's are. Not, there's not enough evidence yes. to say that either, right? I mean, no, so- exactly. So if you're certain that these things are killing everyone, you're also Irrational. Yeah, I mean, I think confident. I think this is the problem when you don't have high quality evidence. You're left yeah. in this like twilight zone of like what you can't say. Uncertainty. When, yeah, exactly. You have just, uncertainty. Um, and when you're uncertainty, uncertainty, I want to tell you, there's another group. There's one other. There's another group. There's the irrationally certain because I think it's stupid to divide this into anti-vaxxer, pro-vaxxer. It's not smart. This a better way. Irrationally confident. Those people cannot. It's very difficult to have conversations with irrational people. They, the data doesn't apply to them. So they're irrational. And um, then there's a small group there. The, the sad thing is that they're a minority of the population. So I've, if you are have a lot of listeners in this show, I might have just pissed off a lot in either side of that irrationally confident. I'm sorry if you're one. Stop being irrationally confident is what I'd recommend and become uh, rationally uncertain. You have to be rationally uncertain. And is the because if you want being uncertain is difficult. It's, it's an uncomfortable place to live that you don't know what is, is the truth. You don't know the truth. And a human mind is not good at sitting on uncertainty. But if you want to be rational, you have to you have to eat that one. You just have to admit that there's some uncertainties here and you don't know exactly. And you could have likelihoods of kind of where you going to lean, but understand that some people's likelihoods are going to be a little different than yours. And, and there's no reason to be angry at them as long as they're in the rational. rational well, I mean, this is, so like what you end up with is let's have a d- discussion and debate where it's, I'm, I'm as likely to learn from you as you are from me. And yes. we're going to, and we're going to, change our minds because the data come in that are different than that what we expected and we leave our minds open. Uh, I think yeah. that that is really the, the, it's the opposite of the illusion of consensus. It's the, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an embrace of this uncertainty uh, and, and a commitment to try to, to reduce that uncertainty with real data, real discussion. Um, I think that's, that's really where, we, where uh, if we're being uh, responsible in public health, that's what we do. That's the thing we embrace. We don't say we know when we don't. We don't lie in order to manipulate the population. Uh, we we uh, we change our minds honestly when we are wrong, and we when we convey that uncertainty honestly to the public. Um, that all that got thrown aside during the during the pandemic. I, 
I, and I understand that because I, it took me a very long time to learn how to talk to patients about uncertainty, you know, but, um, I think that it just takes some practice because I, I, I eventually did learn how to do it, but I didn't know how to do it just at a residency. Uh, and I'll give you a perfect example of, uh, someone has like a low probability of a appendicitis, you know, young, young woman comes in low, got right lower quadrant pain. She comes in cause she's worried it could be appendicitis. Look her over, get some labs, put everything together. You know, she doesn't have a fever. She's not vomiting. It's really not that bad of a pain there. And I was like, you know, I think your chance of this being appendicitis is pretty low. But the problem here is that I can get a CT scan. I can get a CT scan and we could just be safe. <laughs> I said is a bad idea. And I'll tell you why. This is why. And because I, but I learned how to explain why this is a bad idea for this person who I just described. It's because CT scans get false positives for appendicitis. And then you're going to get a surgery that you don't need. Okay. So, but. It just so turns out that if you go home and you spike a fever, you start vomiting. That pain there gets worse. And then we get a CAT scan and it shows appendicitis. That's not going to be a false positive anymore. But right now, if you, if I see a appendicitis on that CT scan and I'm looking at you with your kind of like symptoms that are not that appendicitis-like you're more likely to get a surgery you don't don't need than to get your appendicitis treated. And I've found out that people don't like getting surgeries they don't need. So um, I've learned that. So this is people like being told the honest truth of why you should do something, why you should. It's sometimes difficult to express it. That is something that was very difficult for me to learn how to speak to patients about, because I got it wrong all the time. Like, oh, say, saying to someone like, I, I just really don't think it's appendicitis is not good. <laughs> Someone's like scared. If they're scared of appendicitis, you have to, like in, in that situation, you can understand there's a lot of bad ways to communicate that to a patient. And where they're going to be like, this guy doesn't care about me. This guy, you know, it's like, and it took me a long time to, to, to nail it, to get it right. And public health, Instead of trying to learn how to communicate things, they decide just lie, just yeah. lie, manipulate, and that's definitely bad. <laughs> well, Joe, um, I, I want to thank you for this. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation, I, and, and uh, I'm fun. really glad that the, that the audience got to got to know you a little bit better. Uh, and I and I, you know, uh, with uh, with the way that you communicate uh, science and uncertainty and. Uh, medicine. I I I hope uh, whoever's president next picks you as CDC director. I think you'd make a fantastic <laughs> one. <laughs> I will not be the CDC director. I will continue to be an emergency medicine doctor. I um I I'll, I'll I'll have phone calls with this. I'd gladly have phone calls with the CDC director. But I am no. I I like my job. I, <laughs> All right. Well, so we'll, maybe we'll, you, maybe you. We'll, That's more on you. That's more on we'll you. Call We'll call this podcast. Till next time. Thanks for for joining us. Thank you, Joe, for joining joining me and uh, and looking forward to uh, to yes. further conversations. Take care, everybody. For sure. Let's do it again. <laughs> okay. Bye bye.